Hello and welcome to Design Emergency. I'm Alice Rawsthorne, co-founder of Design Emergency with the wonderful Paola Antonelli, who's joining me from her base in New York and I'm in London. Hi, Paola. Hello, Alice. Good morning, good afternoon to everyone and also good night. So on most episodes of Design Emergency, either Paola or I interview amazing designers, architects, engineers and others who are at the forefront of developing innovative design solutions and forging positive change. But every so often we discuss design's response to particular issues. And in this episode, that's gender bias. And we're going to do that by celebrating our personal picks of the many hidden heroines of design, the gifted and inspiring women who, despite their talent, ingenuity and dedication didn't receive the opportunities or the recognition that they deserve. Why? Well, misogyny is the obvious answer, though many of our hidden heroines were also impeded by prejudice against their ethnicity, geography, faith and other factors. Women have, of course, faced the same challenges in many other fields, as have people of colour, the trans and queer communities and everyone else who doesn't conform to cis-white male archetype. But arguably, it's been even tougher in design because it's an interdependent field where the support of senior colleagues is needed to secure entry and to clinch commissions and resources. As most of those power breakers are cis-white men, the cycle of exclusion continues. That's why we're paying tribute to seven of the remarkable women who've succeeded in making a major impact on design despite all the barriers. So over to you, Paula. Yes, a big impact on design and a big impact on the world in some cases, as is the case of the first heroine that we're going to speak about. And, you know, in some cases, some of these heroines have been covered extensively by other women that really wanted to surface their accomplishment. But in the case of Letitia Mumford Gear, a lot needs to be done still. So this is a call to action for all of the people that are listening to us. What I can tell you is that Letitia Mumford Gear, a nurse, was in the 19th century responsible for the invention and patent of the single-handed syringe. And you can imagine what that means for the world. She was born in 1852 in New York City, and she lived there together with her family for most of her life. In uh, 1899, she was approved with her patent with publication number us 622 848A. And I want to get so detailed because the patent application was equally detailed. It showed how the syringe would be used and it was very, very simple, but it was a pump that had one particular characteristic. It had a plunger that fits into a cylindrical tube, but there was a U-shaped handle that made it so that it was really very easy to use it with only one hand. And you know what, the, the syringe is a very, very old invention. It goes back to the 9th century AD when an Egyptian surgeon created it. And it was improved along the centuries, but it's really Letitia Mumford gear that improved it in such a way that right now we all get jabbed with only one hand by nurses and doctors all over the world. What you find about Letitia is usually part of some study of women in STEM, you know, science, technology, uh, uh, engineering and math, and sometimes in STEAM or in STEAMED, as Alice and I like to say, because we like to add the word design, but it's true that there are so many of these different heroines. Some are known, for instance, you might know about Austrian actress Hedy Lamarr, a very well-known Austrian-born 
American actress who made a splash in the 1930s in Hollywood and then during World War II she put to use her prodigious mind in the service of the U.S. Army by uh, really developing frequency hopping technology, the technology that right now is behind Wi-Fi, Bluetooth and GPS. Or another great uh, actress, you know, more amateurish than, uh, than Hedy Lamarr, Leona Chalmers, who in 1937 patented the first commercially available menstrual cup that was made of uh, rubber and therefore it became scarce during Second World War. But then in the 50s she reprised it and then in the 70s she stopped her company because women were not comfortable using the menstrual cup. And you know that now instead it has become a very important staple of millennials and Gen Z's culture, uh, environmentally conscious and also women uh, physiology conscious. So it's really interesting to see how these momentous hidden heroines really changed the world a century ago for it to continue right now and made tremendous innovation. Well, and also presumably in all three cases had no formal training in design. They used improvisational engineering. Absolutely. They were trained mostly, you know, in the case of Hedy Lamarr, she was trained in science, but definitely not in design. And, you know, they used their own savvy, their wisdom that came from their practice. Indeed. Well, my first hidden heroine worked in a very different context and with different results, but shared many of their extraordinary and admirable qualities. And she is Anne Macbeth, who was an incredible designer and design activist who worked in the Scottish city of Glasgow in the early 20th century. And she used the stereotypically feminine medium of embroidery to campaign for votes for women as a militant suffragette, and then to empower working class women by teaching them new practical skills and forms of self-expression. She was born in Bolton, Manchester, and enrolled at the Glasgow School of Art in 1897, at a time when, thanks to its visionary director, Francis Newbury, and his embroiderer wife, Jessie, it was the most exciting art and design school in Europe. And Anne Macbeth rapidly became Jessie's star student. Together they liberated embroidery from its stereotype as this traditional feminine medium. They did so aesthetically by developing a modern geometric style and politically by running Saturday classes for needlework teachers from schools throughout Glasgow and making banners to celebrate Glasgow's growing cultural dynamism and, of course, to support the suffragette cause. Because Anne was a suffragette activist from the very start, organising marches and actions throughout Glasgow and encouraging teachers and students from the School of Art to make banners and posters for them. The principal suffragette group at the time, the Women's Social and Political Union, was run by the Manchester family, the Pankhursts, and was renowned for the sophistication with which it used design as a tool of protest, notably its inspired, colour-coded visual identity. And Anne designed and made one of the most beautiful and moving of all the WSPU's banners by embroidering the signatures of 80 suffragettes who were then in Holloway Prison in London in the the WSPU colours of purple, green and white for a 1909 demonstration in Edinburgh. And you can see it and images of the work of all our other hidden heroines on our Instagram grid at design.emergency. Now, Anne herself was imprisoned after being arrested at a WSPU protest and was subjected to force feeding and solitary confinement after she went on hunger strike. 
But after her release from prison, she was cared for by her friends and colleagues back in Glasgow. And when Jessie retired as head of needlework at Glasgow School of Art, Anne was appointed to succeed her. And she soon expanded the Saturday classes into a citywide programme for local women's groups, using inexpensive materials to sew and embroider useful items like needle cases and table mats for people who were living frugally, and encouraging them to develop their own design rather than copying other people's. She spread her message nationally by sending samples of her work to schools across the UK, delivering public lectures on the social and economic benefits of embroidery and other forms of needlework and by publishing instructional books on those subjects. And Anne Macbeth's own work was so accomplished that it was not only sold at prestigious stores like Liberty of London, but she won public commissions, including one for Glasgow Cathedral. And as a design activist, she made a huge contribution to the suffrage cause, but also to empowering thousands of individual working class women to earn money and realise their creativity. So a truly exemplary hidden heroine of design. What is fascinating is the interaction and intersection between politics and design in some of our heroines. You talked at the beginning about liberating embroidery, which I thought was really beautiful. But seriously speaking, the connection to the suffragette movement is what made her work even more resonant. And the testimony to history is even more palpable. And, you know, I, I want to now go to my next hidden heroine for, for whom we moved to Argentina and before that to Paris, because she was also touched by history, notably when Argentina was part of the dictatorship. But her life starts in Paris. Her name is Colette Bocara. She was born in Paris in 1921, but since her Paris was appointed as a representative in Buenos Aires for Hachette, you know, the publishing company, she moved when she was 10 to Argentina with her family. And there she studied at the French Lyceum. She had this like nice upbringing as a French girl in Argentina. But then she enrolled in the School of Architecture on the Faculty of Exact Sciences, it was called at that time, at the University of Buenos Aires. And, and at that time, there were, I think, you know, like seven, six women, she says. She, she graduated in 1945, but she said that women, it was really tough going, she said that women at that time were like chairs. Nothing was expected of them. And instead, she was an excellent student. She was really outgoing. She started working before she even graduated and participated in several um, exhibitions and projects. And she started working with a particular studio together with was then her romantic relationship with another student architect, Cesar Janello. She married him once they graduated in 1945, very wise, you know, at that time, so many women had to drop off because they would marry before finishing architecture. And together, Cesar and she joined the studio of another couple in life and in profession, which was Amancio Williams and Delfina Galvez. They were very famous. You might have seen their work for the Bridge House in Mar de la Plata, these modernist architects that really defined so much of the language of Argentina in that particular uh, moment in the mid-century. 
so Williams in particular operated a workshop. There was a teaching lab for uh, many architects that actually touched me, like Tomas Maldonado, there was my, uh, my professor in Milan, or Emilio Ambas, there was also a curator at MoMA. But anyway, uh, Colette herself worked while still a student on some of the masterpieces of Argentinian architecture of the mid-century, like the Casa Amarilla in Buenos Aires. And also she worked on the suspended office building, another very well-known uh, building from 1945, and also the Buenos Aires International Airport. But anyway, in 1948, she and Cesar moved to Mendoza, which is a city in the west of Argentina, very close to the border with Chile, in the middle of wine country, you know, where, where the Malbec gets made. And uh, she became a faculty member of the School of Ceramics that was exploring ideas of serial and utilitarian production. And it's very interesting because the intersection of Argentina with the Bauhaus, also because of the many expats from Germany into Southern America, was brought to life by this intersection with crafts and industrial production. And in 1953, Colette founded Colbo, which is an abbreviation of her name, a company devoted to the production of modern style tableware made of ceramic stone tiles from the mountain range near Mendoza. Besides tableware, they were also producing construction tiles. So they were searching at the same time for exquisite aesthetics, but at the same time also trying to optimize efficiency in the production chain. So true industrial design. One important date was 1954, when the Feria de América, which was a national program that gathered all the avant-garde production and industrial production in Argentina, happened in Mendoza. At that time, some scholars said that Cesar and Colette were almost like the Charles and Ray Eames of Argentina, but they then split just three years later in 1957. Cesar went wherever he went, and instead Colette remained in Mendoza and continu continued her work running Colbo well into the 1980s, and she died in 2006. But it's important to say that so much of the identity of Argentina, much as the one in the US is defined by Charles and Ray Eames, is still defined by Colette Bocara and her Colbo company. Fantastic story. Now, sadly, my next hidden heroine didn't have such a smooth ride into design as the wonderful Colette Bacara, and it is Lottie Biza. She was an architect who emerged as a prolific urban planner and social housing designer in the Netherlands after World War II, but whose early career reads like a soap operatic cautionary tale of the obstacles that faced ambitious women at the time, and indeed still do. Now, Lottie was born in 1903 in Silesia, which was then in Germany and is now part of Poland. Her family had very modest means, so when she left school, she qualified as a secretary, one of the few jobs that was open to women at the time that would enable her to leave Silesia and to travel. She discovered design completely by accident while she was working as a secretary at the Deutsche Werkbund, and she enrolled on its weaving courses and then, having heard of the Bauhaus, dynamic, 
New German Design School she enrolled there in 1926. And when the Bauhaus opened its first architecture department the following year, she transferred to that, becoming the first woman ever to study architecture at the Bauhaus. But sadly, the soap opera then began when Lottie Beza made the classic mistake of falling in love with her teacher, the Swiss architect Hannes Mayer, an older married man and serial Lothario who'd already had many affairs with fellow Bauhauslers. When he was appointed director of the Bauhaus a year later, Mayer insisted that Lottie should leave the school in order to protect his reputation. She then struggled to find work in Berlin and then in Brno as she had no architectural qualifications, having failed to complete her studies. When Mayer was fired from the Bauhaus in 1930, he left Germany to live in the Soviet Union with a group of fellow communist students, the Bauhaus Red Brigade. And Lottie visited him in Moscow, but they rowed and she returned to Brno only to discover that she was pregnant. I did say it was so operatic. Now, Mayer refused to allow Lottie and their son Peter to live with him in Moscow, not least as he had already begun a relationship with yet another former Bauhaus student. But as a communist, Lottie risked persecution by the Nazis in Brno, so she moved with Peter to Kharkiv in Ukraine, joining a growing group of young left-wing architects from Western Europe who were there to build a revolutionary new society. Among them was the Dutch architect Maud Stam, who fell in love with Lottie, married her, adopted Peter and took them and their newborn daughter back with him when he returned to the Netherlands in 1934. And Lottie finally completed her architectural education during World War II which enabled her to practice independently after the war ended. By then, she and Stam were divorced. In 1946, her career really began. She was appointed director of the School of Urbanism in Amsterdam and commissioned to work on the redesign and reconstruction of the bomb-ravaged city of Rotterdam, starting with Pendrecht, a new neighbourhood of over 6,000 workers' homes. Lottie designed it to combine the modernist merits of economy and efficiency with the humanist values of warmth and ease in what she called an extension of the city, not an isolated suburb. She created diverse communities by mixing homes of different types and different sizes in clusters that accommodated people of many ages, heritages and incomes, punctuated by green spaces and children's play areas. She even experimented with traffic-free roads, the first in the Netherlands. Now, Pendrecht was such a success that Lottie Beezer was able to apply the same approach to other new neighbourhoods in the Netherlands, enabling her to work on a scale that eluded most of her male peers and was extremely rare for a woman architect then and now. So a happy ending for the remarkable Lottie Beezer, but after so much suffering. I can't help but thinking, what would happen if this story were to be known or to happen today? How many men would we have to cancel? Definitely we should cancel Mayer. And, you know, we can also romanticize things. You know, we are the sum of what happens to us. And sometimes the hardship that so many of these women endured make them explode into bursts of creativity that might not be reached otherwise. But no matter what, history is history. And it's wonderful to have a chance to be able to unearth all of these histories today and be able to tell them to audiences as wide as possible. 
And, and I have to say, my next hidden heroine is just so fascinating to me. Uh, she was larger than life, but also as thin as a thread and elegant and beautiful and a fashion illustrator and a model and a muse and a textile entrepreneur and a children's book author, you name it, I have to say I was introduced to her life by Milton Glaser, no less than Milton Glaser, and I have not finished studying her. Her name is Jacqueline Ayer or Jacqueline Branford Ayer. She was born in New York City. I'm so sorry if I'm being so parochial these days, but to Jamaican parents. And the reason why Milton Glaser told me about her is because she grew up in the Bronx in the same complex, in the same housing complex where Milton grew up. It was a Trotskyist housing complex called the Co-ops that was uh, built for garment workers. And actually, uh, Jacqueline's mom, Thelma Branford, was part of the ILGWU, which was the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. And her dad was actually uh, a graphic artist who founded the Branford Modeling Agency, which was the first licensed African-American agency in the United States. So think of this situation, these two brilliant parents, um, this housing complex, which by, by the way was the first interracial, the first neighborhood in the country to have interracial couples. So it was really very much avant-garde. And, you know, the, uh, she went, Jacqueline went to the Harlem's High School of uh, Music and Art, which was already iconic, and then to Syracuse University. And then after that, she moved to Paris, where she was finishing her studies and she worked as a fashion illustrator and attracted the attention of Christian Dior and several appointments for Vogue magazine. And in the meantime, gorgeous as she was, she also modeled for Man Ray. Actually, in one of his uh, performances, she was the black queen while Man Ray's wife was the white queen. So it was really top notch amongst her muses. She came back to New York briefly and by by now we're in the 50s, then back to Paris. While she was in Paris, you know, you know she was briefly back in New York where she met Warhol. I mean, she met everybody that she needs to meet and was amused to all of them. I understand she was also at some point dancing with Baryshnikov at Studio 54, of course. But in the 50s, you know, she was back in Paris and she fell in love with Fred Ayer, a young American who had just returned from Burma and who ignited in her a passion for the cultures of Southeast Asia. And so they moved back to Southeast Asia and they were denied a visa to enter Burma. So they moved to what was then Siam and now is Thailand and they stayed there for five years. And during these five years, Jacqueline had the first two daughters and she launched a fashion company because why not? She was so multiversed and so absolutely and endlessly creative. She met entrepreneur Jim Thompson, that was the founder of the Thai Silk Company that was trying to make a business model of a new company based on traditional Thai crafts, but instead met Jacqueline and decided instead to go modern. So. Jacqueline started decorating this Thai silk company wares and in a way invented a look for Thailand that was perceived as quintessentially Thailand and instead had been concocted by a New Yorker and worked with him for a long time. 
And by 66-67, Design Thai had over 400 employees and was selling their wares to shops like Harrods. So it was really a quite amazing career and it's not over yet because in the 1970s, she even went on to advise Indira Gandhi on how to develop India's traditional textile crafts in all over the country by uh, setting up all of these cottage industries that really made the movement come alive. And then after that, there was more. She came back to New York. There were Bloomingdale's, Neiman Marcus, the Conrad store, and her children's book. You know, she was always drawing, says her daughter, Beth. And she became really also famous as a children illustrator with a series that began with Nudang and his kite. I'm not going to go into so much detail now, but the book is fantastic and nearly six decades later it was republished by a Brooklyn-based independent uh, company Enchanted Lion. So we're talking about a woman that was really multifaceted, that broke grounds, that uh, moved all over, all over the world, that created iconic images and iconic products and that needs to be uh, studied more in detail. I know that many scholars are already uh, tackling her history, but I have a feeling that there are at least a few exhibitions and books that are in her. Oh, I'm sure there are. What an extraordinary polymath. Now, my third hidden heroine is very much alive and very much working at the age of 82, and she is the extraordinary Pakistani architect Yasmin Lari. She was born in Dera Ghazi Khan in 1941 and studied architecture in the UK, returning to Pakistan as soon as she graduated in 1964. She and her husband, Suhail Zahir Lari, opened a practice in Karachi, making her Pakistan's first female professional architect. They were successful from the start, designing brutalist homes in the 60s and 70s and major public buildings in the 80s and 90s, including the Finance and Trade Centre and the Pakistan State Oil House. She and Suhail established the Heritage Foundation of Pakistan in 1980 with the objective of researching and conserving the country's architectural and design heritage, and in 2000 she retired from the practice to focus on her work at the foundation. Five years later, Yasmin embarked on a new career as a humanitarian architect and designer after a horrific earthquake in northern Pakistan killed 80,000 people and left over 400,000 families homeless. She travelled to the quake zone and despite having no experience of disaster relief, started to work with displaced people to rebuild their homes using mud, stone, wood and other materials found in the surrounding debris. Yasmin also trained local volunteers to rebuild more homes using the same method. By doing so, she was empowering them to rebuild not only their homes but their lives and liberating them from the roles of powerless victims after such a traumatising disaster. She and her colleagues at the Heritage Foundation have since mounted participatory reconstruction programmes after earthquakes, floods and other disasters throughout Pakistan always training local people and encouraging them to apply their newfound skills commercially. Over the years, they've built emergency housing for tens of thousands of people in disaster zones. Yasmin has also continued the architectural conservation work for which she and Suhail originally set up the foundation while experimenting with low-cost, zero-carbon, zero-waste construction, materials and building techniques that are better suited for use in Pakistan. 
She has also designed useful devices like chulars, smoke-free earthen ovens that can be made and decorated by the women who use them, enabling them to personalise them. So very nice parallel with Anne Macbeth's work in embroidery there. Now, at the grand age of 82, Yasmin Lara is as productive as ever. She's currently teaching at Cambridge University here in the UK, while trying to persuade banks, NGOs and other global funders to fund her participatory network, which aims to build a million new homes in Pakistan by the end of next year. And she is revered by young architects all over the world because in the age of the post-architect, she is a paragon of how architects should be involved in the world. And it's also interesting that by the sort of um, standards of the architect era, she was successful. She designed these huge public buildings in Pakistan, which, as she says, were very glossy, very sleek, very luxurious, but then had the intellectual dexterity and also the heart and the imagination to rethink her practice completely. She's a model not only in design and architecture, but to women everywhere. Well, our last hidden heroine of the day was not perhaps a star architect by normal definition, but she was so dashing and absolutely stunning with her big glasses that Jackie O would have uh, envied. Uh, her name was Vitlana Kana Radovic, and she was a prominent Montenegrin architect, urban planner and professor. She was recently... I wouldn't say rediscovered because anybody in Eastern Europe might already know her very well, but she was brought to prominence in the United States and in Italy, first by the exhibition, I'm going to be a little parochial here, the exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art that happened a few years ago about modern Yugoslavian architecture, and then by a small but beautiful exhibition that happened at the Biennial of Venice of Architecture in Venice in 2021 that was curated by Diana Vucinic and Anna Katz. Her work is not necessarily what you would expect if you were wrongly stuck to the stereotypes of what it means to be a woman in feminine architecture because it's unabashedly brutalist. And you know how much lately architects like us have been really uh, enamored with brutalism in a romantic way. She was born in 1937 and studied architecture at the University of Belgrade in Serbia and then at the Architectural Association in London later on. What I like very much is that she knew she wanted to be an architect since she was a child. So these are her words, I always wanted to build. Even my childhood games were architectural in a sense. I loved making houses out of cardboard boxes, cutting out, I would make windows and doors with shutters. And at the moment of opening those shutters, that is actually a breach into a newly made space, the interior space, which seemed very mysterious, very provocative. And indeed, her work was always very provocative. She worked, um, she worked really a lot while she was active in Montenegro. At that time, it was Yugoslavia. But she became really well known for her architecture of hotels. That's what distinguished her from all the other architects, even though she was involved in many different buildings, you know, tall, uh, low, and public and private. She was really distinguished by her architecture of hotels. That's why she was most famous. And the most 
most important of her works is the Hotel Podgorica in Podgorica in Montenegro that is still there. I just checked on hotels.com before, <laughs> before getting online and you could, get a, you could get a room right now. And the design was a, a winning proposal of a competition and uh, it was officially opened in 1967, which is the Montenegrin National Day. She won many awards. She was uh, revered in Montenegro and elsewhere. But what I find particularly interesting is that she continues to be an inspiration for young architects. So there's um, a group that, uh, that gathered around her to try and protect that hotel as a building heritage. And the group is symbolically called Kana, which is her name, but it is also an abbreviation uh, of architects. Who else? You know, it's like, oh, Akone architect, uh, with which Kana's name is really alive and continues to be used as a way to show how architecture can be an active force and an agent of, of change in society, no matter the political and historical vagaries. Wow. So an extraordinary woman to end on. Um, but what a wonderful group of women, each of them remarkable, and each of whom in their very different ways has made an incredible contribution to design, architecture and society. Thank you all very much for listening and for joining Paola and I in celebrating just a few of the many hidden heroines of design. You can find images of the projects we've discussed on our Instagram feed at design.emergency and we look forward to welcoming you back to Design Emergency very soon. Goodbye. <laughs>